There's this thing people say about podcasts, and they believe it. Podcasts are intimate because we listen to them right inside our heads, right? But guess what? They're not. They're intimate only to the degree with which we, the producers, the editors, the hosts, actually make them that way. And then, boy, can they ever be intimate. I interviewed Ellen Burstyn in 2014. And she had written a memoir where she had written about, when she was 18 years old, having an abortion that was not legal. And it was a terrible experience. And she told me during our interview, like, it doesn't go away. And I asked, did you go alone? That's Anna Sale, host of Death, Sex, and Money. Widely called one of the best interviewers there is. Just listening to her, I want to tell her my darkest secrets, which is just like thousands of guests and millions of listeners over the last decade. Anna Sale is a master of the art of intimacy, and she has a lot to say about how she does it. I want to make something that feels warm, and even if it's like going to maybe make some things bubble up while you're listening, that you feel like you're accompanied. Stick with me to learn how she asks blunt questions, how she thinks through the ethical dilemmas of asking people about stuff we don't talk about, about how she navigates sharing highly personal stories in an enormously public forum, and also about how, in all the noise, she continues to create and nurture an unshakable community of listeners, and how you can, too. This is Sound Judgment, where we investigate just what it takes to become a beloved audio storyteller by pulling apart one episode at a time together. I'm Elaine Appleton-Grant. Storytellers, did you know that Sound Judgment is also a free newsletter? Every two weeks, get storytelling, hosting, and journalism strategies taken straight from the on-the-ground experiences of today's best audiomakers, no matter the genre. Newsletters feature examples for you to try in your studio, essays on the challenges and the rewards of this craft, and news about fellow audio creatives making the kind of work we all aspire to. Sign up free at soundjudgmentpodcast.com. Anna, it is hard to imagine that there is a listener who has not heard of you or listened to Death, Sex, and Money. But just in case, I want to start by saying that you've been hosting this show for WNYC since 2014. And it's a show about, as you say, the things we think about a lot and need to talk about more. You're known as being one of the best interviewers there is someone who elicits very personal stories while always preserving the dignity and worth of the person you're talking with, which is a remarkable balancing act. Hmm. Thank you. That means a lot. That's hard to do. I agree. And it's the North Star. Yeah. Thank you. There's a speakers bureau called Fresh Speakers. I love what they say about you. Anna Sale is the guest you're afraid to invite, but secretly crave at the dinner table. <laughs> what do you think of that? <laughs> I mean, I think so. Like, yes, I think I I do add a little, uh, you know, grist to dinner party conversation, but I hope in a way that makes people feel, you know, like it was a pop in conversation and not like things got weird. <laughs> <laughs> so I have this theory that 
most of us really don't like to have uncomfortable conversations, but we love to listen to other people's uncomfortable conversations. What do you think about that? Yeah, I think that's right. And I also think there's like a little bit of, you know, at Death, Sex, and Money, we talk about things that we don't often talk about in the public sphere. And maybe those are uncomfortable things. But what I've found by creating the right spirit, what feels like it ought to be uncomfortable to talk about actually feels like really deep sharing. So I don't think of of Death, Sex, and Money and what we do as necessarily kind of having that provocative conversation that, you know, people want to listen in on. It's more just like, uh, like that. I want that feeling of exhale of like, oh yeah, it's not that hard to talk. We can admit that life takes money and figuring out how to deal with money is hard and people have different amounts of money. We don't have to pretend that we're all at the same level, which is what we pretend most of our lives, most of the time. So things like that. So I feel certainly... People like to listen in on uncomfortable conversations. And also, I think they want to have conversations around things that make them uncomfortable. And what I hope the show is a part of doing is giving all of us a little bit more permission to try. I like that word permission. And, you know, I know that part of the show is sort of creating safety, right? For everybody probably involved in the show your guests, your team, your listeners. Yeah. And I think safety, I don't call the show a quote unquote safe space. I think what you said, dignity is really at the heart of it. It's not like I'm not going to sort of have curiosity or make you say more if there's something that I'm not quite getting. I'm going to poke, but I'm going to do it with the intention of making you feel like I'm doing it out of a respectful desire to understand even if I disagree or I imagine a listener might disagree. Right, right. When I invite a guest on Sound Judgment, I ask them to share an episode of their show that they either loved making or found very challenging. And the episode that you gave us was released in August of this year, 2023. It's called Bells and Bills, The Price You Paid for Your Wedding. Tell me the story of how this episode came about to begin with. I believe it was originally pitched by our producer, Zoe Azule, and she's just, I think, kind of a, you know, a student of the wedding industrial complex and is interested in, you know, how weddings get pulled off and the very different ways families think about what's the proper way to celebrate the beginning of a marriage. And as she was thinking about what kind of stories we want from listeners, She got really interested in wanting to hear from either people who were just on the verge of having their weddings or people who had very recently had their weddings, mostly because just the cost of weddings, along with inflation, pre-COVID versus post-COVID, it's a different universe. So pulling off a $20,000 wedding, if you're inviting people and doing the things that wedding events take, flowers, caterers, et cetera, like... That's really hard to do. So we wanted to catch people as they were reckoning with the real cost of things in this moment and hear about why they were making the choices they were making. Yeah. You know, I actually got married two years ago. Oh. Yeah. Congratulations. Why, thank you. Did you have sticker shock? (laughs) I did. (laughs) I am embarrassed to say this, but 
you know, it was still the tail end of COVID. We had it outdoors. I think there were 20 people, including the two of us. And we had to say to our out-of-state family and friends, it's still COVID. We don't dare invite you because it could shut down at any moment. And that helped with the cost. I want to play a clip from early in this episode because it surprised me, although in retrospect, I think it should not have. Yeah, I remember when uh, we did our potential invite list, Devin had about 150 people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So how many guests did you have for your wedding? I think 17. Well, I think it was 17, including us, babe. Devin and Sierra are both in their late 20s, and those aren't their real names. Because we talked about money, family relationships, and in-laws, many people asked to shield their identities for this episode. So that was the part that actually surprised me, was the anonymity. Because when I went into it, I was like, oh, it's a, it's a story about weddings and, you know, the cost of weddings. I didn't realize that it would be this, you know, like cloak and dagger kind of thing. But then it made <laughs> sense. <laughs> so, you know, on one hand, people send in voice memos saying, I want to talk about this. And then people wanted anonymity. So you run into this all the time. Talk about navigating, finding great sources, and then dealing with their worries about being public. Yeah. The other dimension I would add to it is I think it's especially kind of strange in podcasting because we tell a lot of stories with the participation of our listeners. So people who know the show, who feel like they're a part of our community, and I think who kind of bring a sensibility of like, I'm coming into the clubhouse to share what I've gone through, you know, in the sense of like, this is like a a little bit of a protected place. And at the same time, we're making a a digital journalism product that goes up online on the internet with a transcript. If you use your first and last name, it will be Googleable. And so we think a lot about that and make sure our listeners are kind of thinking that through. And we are a journalistic team. So We also have to have in mind, if we're changing names and shielding people's identities, we also want to be confident that what they're telling us is not untrue. So there's all these things happening. To me, I feel quite comfortable as a journalist withholding identifying details of people that I'm interviewing from the listener for privacy reasons. I feel very comfortable if that's something a guest feels like is important to them, whether it's because sometimes they're talking about a relationship that ended badly and they might not feel safe. Sometimes they have kids and they're talking about something that involves their family and they don't want their kids necessarily to like stumble upon it. You know, eight years from now when they Google their mom, sometimes it can be something like, I'm talking really openly about my money worries and how much money I have and how much debt I have. And I don't want an employer to Google my name and look that up. Or I just don't want, you know, this is private stuff and I want to talk candidly about the emotions around it, but I don't necessarily want it to be part of my digital record online. And so I think those are all really legitimate reasons. It does mean that, like... When we change names, when we change a first name, we will tell our listeners we're changing a name. We don't swap in. We don't take protecting the identity of our listeners 
We don't extend that to the idea of like, maybe we could like make up something. Like we don't bring fictional elements into our journalism. But I feel quite comfortable, particularly given the nature of the kind of storytelling we do, to have conversations with our guests about what it's going to mean, about what is exposed, about what they share with us. So there are a lot of voices in this episode. It's crowdsourced from your listeners. I want to start with Devin and Ciara. They purchased this wedding package called a micro wedding. And here they are talking about what their wedding felt like. The intimacy was was overwhelming. I mean, as a guy that doesn't cry a lot, like I, I don't think I could stop crying. <laughs> and about how much do you think your wedding celebration cost all in? I think it was about um, twelve or thirteen thousand dollars. That still seems like a lot for something called micro. Right. so (laughs) that's just a great moment and that response is funny and it's clear that they think it's also funny do you have anything to say about like how you think about balancing humor with serious conversations about things yeah I think that I I like that about the way that our interviews go I don't think consciously oh, here's a moment when I need to like turn the camera back on me and make a joke. I think for me, it's much more sort of rhythmic and pacing when someone's talking, if they're telling a long story. Something I do a lot is like repeat back a a word, you know, do a callback from something they've said before. And I feel like what it does for the listener and for the guest is it's like, did you get that? Like, here's the through line. And also to the listener, I'm saying, I heard you and was listening to what you were saying. I think of it like maybe bolding the sentence or underlining it. And I often do that with a, maybe with a laugh or something. I hope in a way that like, is letting the listener kind of also appreciate the absurdity of some of what comes with difficult things, not in a way of like making light or just being dismissive, but like, you know, that moment, like twelve dollars or $13,000, like where you're thinking about wedding budgets, you're like, oh, that's not an expensive wedding. And then if you think it's called a micro wedding and it still costs more than 10 grand, like that's some money. <laughs> you know? like, a micro <laughs> wedding should be a couple thousand dollars. I mean, micro yeah. sounds tiny, right? Micro, yeah. teeny. Yeah. And, and in fact, I noticed that. I was wondering in post, are you making those choices like to have some fun at the beginning so that listeners will feel like, okay, maybe we're going to talk about some serious stuff, but it's not going to be heavy right away. We're going to get a tone and and point out like the laughing at the absurdity of the industry, the wedding industry. I saw George Saunders talk about writing and he was talking about how he talks with writing students about finding their voice. And he describes it basically as like paying attention to how you in particular use your charm. Like what happens when you are trying to sort of, you know, endear yourself or getting somebody to open up or connect with somebody. And when I hear that moment about micro, that's like me using my version of charm. It's like 
That's my voice right there. What does that phrase mean to you? It means something different to everybody, finding your voice. To me, it's about your aesthetic sensibility, your taste. If we're extending the metaphor of like, when you're creating a podcast, you're creating a clubhouse, right? And different podcasts have different numbers of doors. Some have secret codes at the front, you know, that you have to get in because they use weird acronyms and things. So you feel like you're part of an in-club. Some are, you know, designed to feel very open and inviting to all. I think of my sensibility and the sensibility that I'm proud of that Desks of Money has is this kind of like, you know, it's like the door's open and there's like a porch and you feel like you can walk in and also that you're not quite sure who's going to be sitting around in the circle inside. So it's like sensibility, it's journalistic vision, and it's also the vibe. You know, I want to make something that feels warm. And even if it's like going to maybe make some things bubble up while you're listening, that you feel like you're accompanied. In some ways, it's easy to look back on a very successful podcast that, I mean, has been on the air for almost 10 years, which is shocking in and of itself. Congratulations. So old, it's amazing. Middle-aged podcast. I know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but in some ways, it's easy to look back and say, well, of course, it has this sort of clubhouse, this community feel. But there are a lot of people starting out saying, I want to create a community. What would you say to them about the things that work and don't work? I think the simplest thing that we have done that I feel like maybe is a step that some people skip is if you ask your listeners to do something, whether it's email you or send you a voice memo or um, send you story ideas, like you have to show them that you listened to what they sent you. You have to model back to the listeners, we're doing this episode about wedding and wedding costs. We're still taking your stories. Here's what Anna and Berkeley said about how she was shocked about her budget, you know, 30-second clip, and then ask again. And it just makes it feel like, oh, I won't be the only one calling in, and they're actually listening. And, oh, that story that that person shared was kind of funny. I had a really different experience. Let me add that. You know, that's not something we invented. It's something that, like, talk radio knows quite well. Like, if you're opening the phones, the phones don't really fill up until you take your first call. The listeners have to see, you're going to actually listen to me if I take this step. And then, you know, I'm still really interested and feel like it's a challenge to figure out, like, how do we figure out new ways continually to make it a reciprocal relationship? What we're asking our listeners to do basically, is when we put a new episode in the feed that they press play. Like, that's the metric that gets tracked. And I don't find that to be enough, but I find the other forms of relationship to be much more difficult to measure, much more difficult to scale. But that's what's going to make a listener feel like this isn't just like one of the eight podcasts I listen to regularly. Like, I actually feel like I have a relationship with this team who makes this thing and I'm bought in. Have you tried anything that didn't work? 
Oh, yeah, 100%. I mean, I don't think of these things as failures, Elaine, okay. but definitely <laughs> definitely things were like people, you know, like in the first, maybe it was the first year of the show, everything was like fresh and, you know, I was just like, let's see what happens. I remember I went out to Portland, Oregon to be on the show Livewire, hosted by Luke Burbank. And I was like, I bet we have some listeners in Portland. What if we say at the top of a show, Anna's going to be on this street corner at 2 p.m. And if anybody likes to go for a jog, she's going to jog to an ice cream place. (laughs) And she's going to bring sweatbands. And I did. And I will tell you, Elaine, when I was in my hotel room getting into my sneakers and collecting the sweatbands to take to that street corner, I was like what am I doing? This is, like, number one, is this, like, safe? Number two, like, what if no one comes? Like, why am I doing this? And I did it, and it was, like, actually amazing. I have glorious memories of the first listener who showed up, and, like, in my memory, he had, like, discovered the show, and he did some kind of like house painting or construction work for for job and was describing listening to the show while he did this work. And then somebody else showed up who was a seasonal firefighter and somebody else showed up who was like interested in getting into audio. And we all went for like a two-mile jog to an ice cream place and then visited. But it wasn't a huge event, right? It was <laughs> it was it was high touch, but not high impact. That was the kind of freewheeling, like, let's try this thing that existed, I feel like, on our show and on, like, maybe the internet feeling kind of, like, fun, more fun, enabled us to, like, say, like, let's try this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, I can see how that would actually sort of go to that clubhouse mentality, even if you got five people jogging with you. You know, you, I can see how somehow there'd be an intangible benefit to that, even if it's not something that a marketing team would say, oh, yeah, that was, you know, (laughs) that had an ROI. Uh, (laughs) But I, I, I like it. I like it. Let's switch now to another guest on this episode. Uh, This is a woman you call Vanessa. Her wedding to her husband, Devin, cost so much money that she actually wouldn't tell you how much. They had 180 guests in New York City. I believe this is the woman who called you like a week before she got married, was really fraught. So let's take a listen to that. And when you say it got complicated, can you give me a few examples of moments where you were like, this is really hard? Well, the guest list was definitely a struggle of who could invite how many people Uh. and family versus friends and trying to navigate what was deemed quote unquote fair. Quickly, it would get very heated between me and my parents. And when you say things got heated in your family, what's that look like when there's conflict? Yelling. Yelling. Uh Uh-huh. And then maybe, you know, no one's talking to each other. Uh-huh. And who, is it all three of you yelling? Mostly me and my mom uh-huh. yelling at each other. And if you were going to um, articulate, like, what your mother's point of view on something like the guest list is, like, what was 
what how how did she describe about what was important to her? You know, it was this is you like we're throwing this like oh. we like basically okay you know this is like just because it's your wedding it's also like our event because of the money yeah i mean it was true what does that feel like to listen back to that oh i love that tape i love that it's like a very personal, concrete story about the question of what does it mean when two adults are marrying and their families are invested in how, you know, the rituals of this wedding are going to occur. And from the mother's point of view, according to Vanessa, it's like, I want to have my friends there as much as we want to have all of your college friends, and then the battles around that, specifically how they had those battles, I find also quite interesting, you know, because families deal with conflict in lots of different ways. Way back in 2014, Fast Company did a story about Mm. you, and the headline was The Queen of the Awkward Pause. And there's a lot of those pauses in there where you're just going, "Mm -hmm. mm-hmm, uh-huh, and then there's some silence. And then she says something else revelatory. So I had Julia Barton on the show last season. She's the executive editor at Pushkin. And she said, you know, producers need to leave some work for the listener to do. What does that phrase mean to you? To me, it means um, the first thing I thought of before I, I started developing Death, Sex, and Money with WNYC, I did... A moth style storytelling workshop in New York City with this great storyteller and teacher named Adam Wade. The thing that I really learned from Adam that I loved and kind of think about not just in endings of the episodes, but like in tracking and how much narration you need to give to the listener, he would be like, say like you got to the end of a story and then you there were like you know, in the first draft, you would say, and so that's when I learned that I could go on a jog with a bunch of people who listen to my podcast. He's like, don't, don't tie up a bow. Take it off. You don't need a bow at the end. Like the listener can follow, maybe leave with another kind of like hanging thought and then a little space and maybe music if that's the style of your show for it to like land and the listener can go, mm, oh, yeah. You know, I can trust the listener to make connections that we're setting up for them. So they feel like they're kind of like hopping from like, you know, stone to stone, you know, to get across, you know, the bog instead of being like, did you see that stone? Here's the next stone. And you did it so well in that passage, you know, like throughout it with the, uh-huh, mm, you know, just those little restrained, you're just listening, and you're not going to help this person out by asking the next question. You know, another thing, when you listen to a lot of podcasts, you learn different host styles of like, what are the odd sounds that they make to indicate to the listener and to the guest that they're listening to them in real time. So like, hmm, oh, huh. Like there's... (laughs) see various ways you can do it so you could like signal to the person you're interviewing like here's what I want you to say more of 
you pick your spots for like when you say, oh, wait, that, tell me more about that. Or when you ask the big question that's like, you know, I imagine that might have brought up a mix of this and this, and is that correct? And da, 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 you know, where you sort of present a thesis and then ask if that resonates with them. But you can't do that every time. You've got to sort of pull them out before you like say, like, here's what I'm hearing, basically. You wrote this great transom blog post a couple of years ago. One of the things that you said, which I, I loved, is you said your guest and your listeners are expecting the hard question, don't wimp out. Tell me about a time when you knew you had a really hard question to ask and you almost did wimp out. And in the end, you, you asked it. Well, it's funny because this is the part of me that I don't fully understand, but I feel grateful for because I, that's not been a problem for me. <laughs> but I notice when it's a problem for other people. Or the other thing I notice is when it's clear that like a host or an interviewer like had an awkward moment and they, you know, maybe had to confront somebody or a guest or a source about something and they cut out and go to tracking and then they come back to the guest or source responding. I'm like, mm, that was a wimpy choice too. Like show us, I want to hear you doing what you're asking this guest to do, which is like find your way with words, you know? And to me, it goes back so much to like, mission and objective of being a news reporter. Like, I was trained going to, you know, press conferences at state capitals. If you came back to the newsroom and didn't have clarity on that one thing where the, you know, the press release was like very vague about where this money was going to come from. And if you hadn't asked, you know, you were going to have to figure that out. So I've always really taken that, that like sense of like, I am here to get this information for my listeners. I do take care to, like, say it's about something that's, like, about a very difficult traumatic event that someone knows that is a part of a memoir they wrote, but maybe they haven't talked about it out loud all that often. I think about beforehand, like, what's the question I want to ask that's not just going to sound like, will you retell that terrible story? I interviewed Ellen Burstyn in 2014, and she had written a memoir where she had written about um, when she was 18 years old, having an abortion that was not legal. And it was a terrible experience. And she told me during our interview, like, it doesn't go away. And I asked, did you go alone? And yes, in fact, she was all alone when She's a teenager trying to figure out how to get out of this situation. And so that told you, you know, what else was going on that affected the trauma. Also that, like, she's had to figure out how to carry with her all on her own. When I ask about something really difficult, I want to either sort of, like, ask my guests to help me, like, understand a little bit more about that scene and to understand the dimensions of why something was hard. And there's ways in which sharing about difficult things can add some lightness and relief. And there's also ways, if done poorly, where you're simply making it all worse. So asking the hard question 
while I think you should do it, you also need to do it with care. Do you have any regrets? Oh, yeah. You know, I've been a journalist since 2005. I don't think I've always been the kind of journalist that I want to be, but I I do take, like, repair seriously. We are working on an episode right now. There's been this wonderful guest on the show over the years named Lawrence Bartley, and he's been on the show maybe four or five times. I've sort of tracked the story of him and his family, and I first interviewed him when he was incarcerated at Sing Sing in upstate New York, and he'd been in prison since he was a teenager and was in his early 40s when we first did our interview. He's since gotten out on parole. He now is a journalist and helps the Marshall Project figure out how to package all of their great reporting about criminal justice for incarcerated audiences. And so I wanted to catch up with him. And so in this latest conversation I had with Lawrence, where we were talking about journalism and what it is to be interviewed by somebody who doesn't have intimate contact with the criminal justice system. And now what he tries to bring as someone who has had intimate contact with the criminal justice system, like what he thinks he brings um, to interviews that weren't present in ours. And then when we were taping, it became clear to me that the first title of our first episode was something that bothered him. In 2014, we titled Death, Sex, and Money's first episode with Lawrence, I Killed Someone, Now I Have Three Kids. That's what Lawrence was mentioning when we were catching up in a phone call earlier this spring. Um, and I remember I got off the phone with you and I, and I, um, I Googled your name and I hadn't done that uh, just, and I noticed that what comes up with your name is you know, your work at the Marshall Project, and then very high up is that first episode that we did together. That's an episode right. that I feel like is quite nuanced. Um, and, and but the title was not, the original title was not. Um, right. And I was, I felt this like real shame as a journalist for having not thought through you know, a decision that we made quickly in 2014 when we were, like, deciding what the episode title ought to be and to post it so it was ready to go out on the podcast feed. Mm -hmm. Like, not thinking through, this is a digital media product. And like it wasn't inaccurate. It also, I don't think, captured, like, what I think is special about that episode, which is, like, this is a man who went to prison you know, has been arrested since he was 17, who, like, did fatherhood classes in prison, became a father to two young boys who are now teenagers. Like, and so I talked with him about, I was like, you know, I've decided we need to change that episode title. And now it's becoming a father in prison. And we put a correction and said that we've updated the title. And I feel very comfortable with that as a journalist. The choices I made in 2014, like, I've changed how I think about things. Like, I understand Google results, and I understand that, like, there are a lot of nouns that you could use to describe people, and what you choose to lead with can have a huge effect on people's lives. Maybe regret is one of the things that I feel 
I understand why 2014 Anna, like, made the choices that we did with our production team about what to title it. And I also feel really clear that, like, you can change things <laughs> if you feel like they're creating more harm than you recognized at the time or creating harm that you didn't recognize at the time. It's such an interesting example in the sort of ethics of what we grapple with on a, on a regular basis, you know, big or small, and how these things last sometimes. You've been interviewed a lot, but of course you've interviewed thousands of times. Do you listen differently when you're being interviewed? I don't listen differently, but I try to participate in a different way. Like, for example... As you've been talking to me, I've had a couple of different forks in the road where I'm like, oh, I would like to understand more about, like, getting married two years ago. Oh, I would like to understand more about New Hampshire Public Radio and magazine. Like, it's like where I would wrest the controls away from you to ask the follow-up question that I'm curious about. But I've chosen not to for the most part. What makes a great guest? I do love somebody who speaks with simple one or two syllable words, creating very clear answers. Like I think about the joy of what it is to interview a poet or a songwriter who speak in poems, you know. I also, but then there can be like somebody who's like really scattered who is fun to talk to because they'll be like, well, I thought this, and then I thought this, and they're like, Ugh, you know, like, it's who like take you on a ride. Um, so, so I don't think there's one way to be a great guest, but I do love a guest who just offers a turn of phrase that transforms the way I think about something. In your mind, what does it take to become a beloved host? <laughs> I don't know how to answer this question and not sound really presumptuous. Uh, I'm being presumptuous <laughs> for you. I take the burden. I feel very satisfied that the body of work we've made at Death, Sex, and Money makes people feel invited in. It makes them feel accompanied. I think the way that I have tried to become a host that people feel some relationship with is like, kind of standing beside them by modeling how I've, sometimes I'll include how something's happened, unfolded in my life. Like, you're not the only one who's had, you know, hard time figuring this thing out. Like, rather than you can be a beloved host by being the smartest person that anybody's ever heard talk about something, I have taken the approach of like, we're all figuring this out. You want to come on in and join us. At the end of every episode, I give you a few of the many takeaways from these conversations. Here are today's. One, Anna and her team hold two conflicting realities in their heads all the time. The show exists to talk about the things we normally keep private, and podcasts exist online for all the world to consume and Google to find. So be clear about your show's values, practice journalistic ethics, and also the specific principles around how you want to treat your guests. Know that you will deal with these kinds of human conflicts every day. Two, how do you prep a guest? 
Before an interview, Anna shares how they plan to edit and use the interview. If a guest asks for anonymity, she might grant it in order to protect them. Three, fact-checking is always important, especially these days. But if you allow anonymity, it becomes even more so. Four, perhaps my biggest takeaway from this conversation is that death, sex, and money is one big, warm place where listeners are invited in and welcomed. Anna is proud that she and her team make listeners feel accompanied wherever they take them. And five, your guests expect hard questions. Don't wimp out. That's all for today. It's one thing as a guest to share private stories with a welcoming host like Anna Sale, But what if you have been grappling with something so personal and maybe humiliating for a long time, and then you realize, so are millions of other people? How would you make a show about that? Coming up next, we answer that question with Ronald Young Jr., the magnificent storyteller behind Wait For It. The real question you should be asking is, what would you be ashamed, who would you be ashamed to be seen with? Who would you be ashamed to be in love with? You know, like what would that actually even look like for you and how would that change your behavior? Also, if you liked my conversation with Anna, you'll love my interview with Snap Judgment's Glenn Washington. The link's in our show notes. You'll also find a link to Death, Sex, and Money there, along with ways to follow Anna Sale. If you love Sound Judgment, help us grow our show. Visit soundjudgmentpodcast.com and click on reviews. You can give us a five-star rating that'll go straight to Apple or Spotify in a heartbeat. And leave us a review on Apple. Answer this question. What's one thing you'll use in your own practice from this interview with Anna Sale? And thanks. Sound Judgment is produced by me, Elaine Appleton-Grant. Audrey Nelson is our production assistant. Sound design and editing by Kevin Klein. Podcast management by Tina Basir. See you next time, storytellers.